0: Welcome to Woke Isn't Enough, a podcast created by two women of color who think that it's time to move collectively beyond checking the boxes when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Jess Aiden Lee, and I'm here with my colleague Fiona Elephant, and we are the founders of Healing Equity United. Hey, Fiona.
1: Hey, Jess. How are you?
0: I'm okay. Um, Happy Asian Pacific American Heritage Month.
1: The same to you.
0: So what are we talking about today?
1: I think today we should talk about wealth privilege. I think that we should draw a connection between what we typically discuss in terms of oppression and how it shows up in this society and make it more tangible to people. And one way to make something tangible is talking about what is or is not in their wallets, i.e., how much dollars do you have in your wallet?
0: I love that you said that because honestly, like... Who carries cash in their wallet anymore so if you were to look at my wallet I'd be completely broke because half the time I don't even remember to bring any cash right so that's very interesting that you raised that um, but anyway I know I think people know what you're generally talking about
1: yes so- you can tell how old I am because I talked about money in a wallet I should have talked about money in an app or money in some oh, virtual yeah. account or some money in a cryptocurrency but we're talking about wealth. Right?
0: Shocked that you know what a cryptocurrency is. I do. I do. All right, then. So, when we're talking about the wealthy, who are we talking about? Are we talking about the 1%? Is that what you mean?
1: Yeah. Can you give folks a little bit of a rundown on who we're actually discussing so we can quantify that?
0: Yeah. So, you know, the the numbers have varied, right, with inflation um, in terms of what does it take to be in the 1%? Because, you know, oftentimes when you're when you're uh, when you grow up poor, like I did, we're always talking about, okay, let's let's just have let's just hopefully be rich one day. Let's have enough. Right. And I think that's a little bit different than the way that the wealthy think about the wealthy. And and so, you know, today, the in order to be in the one percent, your household income has to be and it varies from report to report, but. At least five hundred and fifteen thousand dollars a year or five hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year. So essentially, if you make above five hundred K a year as a household, you are in the one percent. What's it feel like to be in the one percent, Fiona? Uh when I get there, I'll let you know. Yeah, let me know. <laughs> We'd like a taste of that life, wouldn't we? So, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the 1%. And I also want to highlight that there's also discussion about the 0.01%. Because apparently there's a big gap between the 1% and the 0.01%. Essentially, it's the difference between your millionaires and your billionaires. Okay. So, but Mm -hmm. for today's purposes, let's, you and I are not numbers people. Nope. What do demographics look like for the 1%? so for the one percent the demographics
1: are that they are overwhelmingly white folks and so um just so that people know jessica and i are relying on some data that was compiled by the urban institute um and it is an updated you know report indicating The nine charts about wealth inequality in America. And basically, the data indicates that white folks make up the vast majority of the 1%. So, for example, they state that by 2016, the average wealth of white families was $919,000. OK, the average wealth of black fam- families was one hundred and forty thousand dollars and the average wealth. And they used the phrase Hispanic Hispanic families was one hundred and ninety two thousand dollars. But I have to ask you, Jessica, what about the Asian families and the native or an in indigenous families?
0: Oh, you know, Fiona, we are always forgotten. Right. We're never in any of these statistics. Which I think is ridiculous. Like half the time, you know I'm looking at, at statistics and data, and the Native American folks as well as the Asian Pacific Islanders are always missing. Never mind that, you know, you need to break out the, the Asian Pacific Islander data, but we're missing so far. So let's let's not get me started on that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's just say that we'll assume that neither of those two communities, are making it up to up there to that one percent um, in terms of having approximately on average nine hundred and nineteen thousand dollars worth of wealth. So, so those are the groups that we're talking about. And according to this data, the disparity has continued to grow in terms of the gap between the haves and the have-nots, between the 1% and the the remaining 99%. Um, So let's just talk about it. Like we've given some of the data, we've laid some of the foundation. So let's talk about all of the wealth privilege that goes along with that while keeping in mind that there is a certain correlation between racial identity and wealth. At least in this country, at least right now. So, Jess,
0: what do you think? You know, I think that there is this narrative in this country that um, immigrants sometimes repeat, right? And it, it's that if you work hard, you're going to make it. If you work hard, right? If, if that's all, she, that's all you need to do. You work hard, you'll be rich. Let me tell you that. The cashier at my local Rite Aid, works really hard. And she's not rich, right? So, So it's not enough for us to be told by the dominant culture that if we work hard enough, we'll make it, that we'll achieve the American dream, right? Because if that were the case, then a lot more, it wouldn't be the 1%. It would be like, you know, the 100%, right? So so who weave this narrative because it also affects poor white folks too right so who can you tell us a little bit about like this this narrative that's been told to all of us
1: yeah so this narrative basically is that you know as you alluded to if you work hard you'll um, earn more you'll achieve the American dream you'll buy the home with the white picket fence um, but I personally believe that that narrative began centuries ago by white wealthy males, right, who um, wanted to get the support of the unmoneyed white folks in the community. So the idea is if I, as a white, Wealthy male, and this is hundreds ago, hundreds of years ago, uh, create policies and legislation that promote my interests and continue to make it easier for me to accumulate wealth. You, as the white, poorer, relatively poorer person in our community, should support me in my efforts because you too someday can become as wealthy as I can, right? And so even though monetarily or in terms of lived experiences, your your reality might be more in line with um, the experiences of immigrants or folks of color, you know, just, it. I think the narrative kind of has been, stick with me and you'll be just fine, right? What do you think?
0: Yeah, and I don't think that narrative has, has really been, has really changed over the years, right? And, and and in fact, leaving that narrative allowed the rich people to get richer, right? And and they use their wealth essentially to to stay rich, and so, you know, basically telling um, telling poor people, including poor white people, that, you know, if you vote for a certain party, then. They're going to, to raise your taxes, right? Or that um, foundations in this country were essentially started as a way for rich people to evade taxes, to hide money. I'm talking about the foundations that support nonprofits here. And they're deciding on what the priorities are for this country. And they are making huge, broad um like impacts, like looking even just at thinking about like, what do rich people usually fund? Right. So there was this thing that that happened in SF where um, San Francisco, where essentially um, I'm not going to say the person's name, but it was millions of dollars poured into let's research, you know, why the the houseless are houseless. And then the nonprofits working with the houseless were like, we can tell you that we've been working with the houseless every single day for decades. But instead of actually funding the nonprofit organizations that help the houseless get out of houselessness, they funded their research behind it, right? Or they push for certain policies in government or they look at things like social media, right? And and try to affect that as we saw with the elections last year. And also, you know, this is not to say that that wealthy folks are not well-meaning. And we can definitely talk about, you know, wealth fragility as well, maybe either today or, or on another episode, but essentially, you know, wealthy people sometimes just give all their funds to a foundation or organization and ask them to disperse it without thinking about whether that organization or that foundation has incorporated equity and inclusion into their work, Right. Or, you know, they're giving it specifically, you know, to one organization. Like we had the example of Jeff Bezos' wife giving it all to Goodwill, right? Which, in my mind, you know, they have a good mission. But if you kind of peel back the layers behind it, we see that they're not necessarily doing as much work on equity and inclusion, right? And there's other controversial factors about Goodwill. And then, you know, another uh, friend of mine who you know, worked um, for a tech company, a huge tech company here in the Bay Area, you know, that had had actually like a a corporate giving program and they had wanted to get into that program essentially because they wanted to, to help tech companies give away money. Learned very quickly that those departments in the tech companies don't actually decide where the money goes. It is often the CEOs, often the people in power, the people who are already rich, who will come And say to those departments, I want you to give to so and so. And so those departments are essentially like administrative offices, right? So like, you know, thinking about efficiency versus effectiveness. I mean, what do you think about that, Fiona? Like, Like, is it efficiency? Is it because rich, wealthy people don't have time? And so they're like, okay, here's the money. You figure out what to do with it. Or is it that they actually believe that they're doing something great?
1: I don't know. I think that neither, both. So why do I say that? Um, I don't know that any of those efforts really fuel change, right? And so if you... So let's take a step back. If we talk about the characteristics of privilege, one, the privilege is, um, you think it's a normalized experience. You think uh, the the privilege is usually invisible to you, right? You think that um, it somehow makes you superior to those who do not have the similar um, privilege, right? And so I guess when we are talking about, you know, how wealthy folks might be better allies or co-conspirators, if they're not acknowledging how privilege, the wealth privilege uh, that is, shows up in their lives, they're not even getting to the question of efficiency versus effectiveness, right? So if I have What did you say it was? Was it in the
0: billions instead of millions? Right. If you were in the top zero point zero point zero one percent. All right. Zero point zero one.
1: Yes, I'm not a numbers person. You keep saying that. Um, Then me giving a million dollars to some nonprofit organization is not. It's nothing to me. It doesn't change my life. It doesn't impact my children's lives. And actually, it might help me, it might be beneficial to me in terms of taxes. And so, you know, I might not be inclined to put that money to use in a way that is going to dismantle systems of oppression, Um, the wealth gap being a substantial system of oppression. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, and and so like okay, so let's we've been talking about the 1% for a while and and yeah, we know that there are also like rich oh, I don't even know what to call them rich, right? But there are people in this country that are wealthier than others, right? Maybe they're not in the top 0.01%, maybe they're not in the 1%, but maybe in they're they're in the top 15 or top 20%, right? People who make you know enough to live on, and then can afford luxuries every now and then. I don't want to necessarily put a number on it, not because I'm a, not a numbers person, but also like these things don't these numbers don't always take into account geography, right? And so like a hundred thousand dollars in um, rural North Dakota will get you a lot farther than a hundred thousand dollars in right. the Bay Area. I think I think where you're
1: I think what you're getting at is that intangible. So it might be that your wealth is showing up in terms of how many members of your family have gone to college and how many members of your family have been able to purchase um, property and how many members of your family have been able to put aside money to put, put into um, stock or to um, Retire. retirement, retirement funds and <laughs> things like that. So you're right, we can't necessarily put a dollar amount on that. But go ahead.
0: Yeah. And so if you're part of that group, right, like what are what are some of the things that we can do as co-conspirators? So I like I know for me, right? Like I'm not I'm not anywhere near the 1%, I'm not I'm probably not even in the top ten. Or whatever, but I have enough to live on. You know, I have enough for a little bit of extra. It probably helps that that um, I don't have children because you know I I hear those those little people cost a lot of money. They Um, do. Yeah, I have two dogs though. They don't. They cost less. Um, But essentially, we have like my partner and I have enough that we we do donate, right? And we've made it a goal this year to donate at least five percent of our combined income, which is actually very hard um, because we we live in the Bay Area. Um, But how can we be co-conspirators? How can the average person in the middle class be co-conspirators? I mean, what do you think, Fiona?
1: I think there are a variety of different ways that we can be co-conspirators. So one, that we can support organizations that are actually doing systems change work right? Um, mm-hmm. If you can't contribute financially, you can contribute in kind in terms of lending your skills and, you know, volunteering for those organizations that do the systems okay. change work. I think that we could also um, work with organizations or, um, let's see, financial systems and institutions that are run by marginalized communities, right? To do some investigations into which organizations in our local communities are run by marginalized folks and use those financial institutions. Um, Those are just a couple that come to mind for me. What about for you?
0: You know, I think that part of it is also like, are we brave enough to give anonymously for those of us who are giving large amounts? I mean, there's, there's an uncle and I, and I say uncle all, all in quotations because in my community, you know, you don't have to be blood related to be, to have an uncle. Um, I have an uncle who, who does have quite a bit of wealth um, because he, as, because he uh, was in an industry where he did was able to make a lot of money and he's older. And that's another actually point, a uh, pivotal point in that the, age gap shows um, that there's a huge, significant gap between people who are older and those who are younger um, in terms of how much wealth they have. But that's another story. Anyway, this uncle of mine gives money every year, a couple thousand dollars away, and he always gives anonymously. And it's not that he's afraid that if his name is published, that people will ask him for donations, but it's because he doesn't care about the tax receipt right his whole goal his whole his whole mission is really to give his money away to causes that he supports in addition to he also you know does a lot of in-kind stuff but he refuses to have his name attached to any of those lists that we have you know in the annual reports or publishing like who your donors are Um, he refuses to let um, board members you know like tell others his name in order to get them to, to, to support. I mean, his whole thing is like, why is it that we need to be publicly acknowledged for the work that we should be doing as part of people who are in upper middle or the upper class? And, and I think that that's important, right? Because whenever we hear about you know super rich people giving money away, they're always acknowledged, and it's always like, oh my gosh, that's so great! They gave millions or you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. And my thing is like, why is that? Why is that so important, right? Like just even thinking about that is is mind boggling in terms of how we all have co opted with this system to essentially tell people who have money that this is okay because we are, you know, stroking their ego. We're telling them we appreciate it. I mean, another thing is, you know, like don't necessarily put contingencies on your wealth if you're giving money away. So I, I, I know people who have said, well, you know, in order for me to donate $10,000 to you, you need to raise $10,000 on your own. Your nonprofit needs to raise that money before I'll write you a check. Right. And do you think that they don't need your ten thousand dollars? Well, why are we putting contingencies on organizations? Right? I don't know. You, because I, I just, it's
1: transactional instead of transformational. Right. Right? Yeah. And and I think, you know, we've only touched on some of the elements of wealth privilege. We haven't I mean, so we've been talking about the financial Aspect. I mean, but there are lots of other elements of wealth privilege as well, right? So yeah. it's a wealth privilege to be able to join the country club where you can then network with other, you know, business folks who can help you generate more income, right? It's a wealth privilege to have your children attend certain private schools. And I went to one of those private schools. Yes, I, I, I saw it all over yes, the place, right? So there are other elements of wealth privilege. And so I guess I would ask you, what are some other ways that um, wealthy folks can use their wealth privilege to be co-conspirators, right? We've always talked about, you know, co-conspiracy is um, leaning into your privileged identity and then using it in solidarity and at the leadership of marginalized folks. So let's give folks, you know, one, two general takeaways um for their co-conspiratorship as wealthy folks.
0: Alright, you start with one and then I'll do two and maybe three. So
1: I would say if I used my example of being on the in the country club or the golf, I don't even course to mm-hmm. network. I would say an act of co-conspiratorship would be to um, engaging marginalized communities around entrepreneurship or around networking opportunities and to help folks establish their own networks so that they can um, increase their wealth as well by, you know, connecting to others who are similarly inclined. Um, Now, if I network with other people who are, uh, don't have the same type of resources, I might not get that far. But if wealthy folks network with us, then we could expand the financial opportunities for all. I don't know if that made any sense whatsoever, but what do you think?
0: You know, I think for me it's it's really about, you know, I'm the calling out person, right? So I think that partially it's calling out some rich people in your name It's calling in if you're rich, right? Um my my partner grew up in it in a neighborhood, uh, full of wealthy people. And part of, you know, the things that he does is to have conversations with the friends he grew up with, right. About why do we need to support? Why do we need to donate? What is the purpose of this? Inviting them to clean the streets with him, um, in Oakland, Chinatown, you know, and and I think, you know, really engaging them in the process is a big part of that. And so uh, let us know what you're thinking, you know, what are some other ways that we can be co-conspirators really? And, and, and and really break through this, this wealth privilege that has so impacted our country. We love to hear from you.